the importance of native plants on this episode of Fairfax County's EnviroPod. Audubon tells us that the continental United States has lost a staggering 150 million acres of habitat and farmland to urban sprawl, and that trend isn't slowing. The modern obsession with highly manicured, perfect lawns along, uh, alone has created green monoculture carpet across the country that covers over 40 million acres. The human-dominated landscape no longer supports functioning ecosystems, and the remaining isolated natural areas are not large enough to support wildlife. Native plants are those that occur naturally in a region in which they evolve. They are the ecological basis upon which life depends. Hi there, I'm Scott Coco, and you're listening to Fairfax County's EnviroPod, where we discuss the amazing things that the Department of Public Works and Environmental Services does to maintain and improve the environment here in Fairfax County. Today I have with me Susie Foster, a landscape architect with DPWES, and we're going to talk about the importance of native plants and what we all can do to help the pollinators, the birds, and maybe even humans here in Fairfax County. Welcome, Susie. How are you doing? Thank you, Scott. I'm doing well. Glad to be here. Talk to me about what you do here for the county. Well, I'm involved with a lot of the stream restorations that go on in in the county, which you don't normally think of as being in the realm of landscape architecture. Mm -hmm. Uh, The reason that landscape architects are important to this discussion is because so many of these streams are in people's backyards, and people, whether the projects are actually on their property or on the adjacent park property, People are very concerned about the ultimate appearance of these areas. And and I was out with Dave Anglin, um, knee-deep in Backlick Run about a year ago. Oh, boy. <laughs> in the Glad freezing you. cold. But it was quite, uh, you know, talk about stream restoration. That was one we talked about on this podcast and did video on. Um, you know, a quite an impressive area about all the, the silt and the land that got washed away and what the county's doing to uh, restore it. And so what do you, how do you take part in that? Well, I guess a good example of a project where uh, I've, I've been more involved than some others is in the uh, Truro neighborhood, which is right off Braddock Road in Braddock District, where the stream restoration actually occurred on a homeowners association property. Mm-hmm. And people's homes backed right up to the stream. It's a beautiful corridor. They're excellent stewards of this property. They're constantly um, taking care of the trees, um, having volunteer events to remove invasive plants that start to strangle the trees. And and they were very concerned when the stream restoration project went in. Um, you know, there was the the stream the tree loss that occurs both with erosion and also with the construction of of, um, some of these stream restorations. Um, So we worked with the adjacent stream, we worked with the adjacent property owners to talk about what impacts there were going to be to their property. We worked with some individuals to actually locate larger caliper trees directly adjacent to their property. Uh, So there's a bit of aesthetics. It's it's, um, kind of on a a very large scale. It's not mm-hmm. your typical um, designer, landscape-designed backyard or anything. But it, it is talking to people about how they perceive the landscape and how we can help buffer 
buffer them from the effects. Question that I've always had is when do invasive plants, or maybe not even invasive plants, but plants that come over from other countries, say the cherry blossom trees, at what point do those plants that come from other countries, at what point do they become native plants? How long do they have to be here, or does that really matter? I don't think that the it's the time period so much as the behavior of the plant. Mm-hmm. So as you mentioned, cherry trees are non, many of the, there are many species of of cherry tree that are non-native. Not all of the non-natives are aggressive and proliferate by seed, but some of them do. Mm -hmm. Um, I wouldn't say that cherry tree is our worst offender. I think the vines that uh, climb the trees and create walls of dense vegetation are the the real problem. And And, and in fact, the Virginia Department of Conservation and Recreation defines different levels of inv- of invasive plants. So okay. they have a, a highly invasive plant, they have a medium invasive, and then they have low invasive. So the cherries would tend to be in that low category. And what we're really going for are the highly invasive, like the kudzu. Um, oh, right, right. right the okay. English ivy. We do have kudzu around here. You don't see it as much. What we mostly see is porcelain berry and bittersweet. And those are the plants that we'll see just walls of oh, vines. Okay. And what happens is those those vines can actually create, you know, a, a load on the tree that actually pulls them down. But they also block light from the rest of the forest. So you'll see those mm-hmm. curtains of invasive vines hanging on the outside edge of a, of a stand of trees. We had it at the government center. Uh, just beyond the pollinator meadow, there was a wall of vines that were that included uh, the Chinese wisteria as well as porcelain berry oh, okay. and bittersweet. Mm-hmm. And those create this curtain that then blocks light to the forest beyond. So it's not just the trees that they climb that they endanger. It's also the environment beyond that curtain. And, it, and it's also interesting is some of those plants also attract... Uh, invasive pests that come. That's you know, right. we, we talked about the spotted lanternfly mm-hmm. that are looking for uh, Asian trees that have been here for a while, and, and they tend to like those and find them and then proliferate. <laughs> That's right. Yes, the tree of heaven is uh, a host for some of those, and the problem is that they may need that non-native tree to proliferate, but they also will then branch out to our native fruits, mm-hmm. fruiting trees and fruiting shrubs, grapevines. And um, so they have the, the non-native tree as a host, and then they branch out. So, yeah, that's a scary one. So what are the big messages that, that you try to get out and that you work on? Well, I think the, the difficult nature, the, the difficulty with native plants and I hate to say it, say it in that context, but I hate to say that native plants are difficult, but the aesthetic of na- native plants is a little bit different. So as a landscape architect, we're trying to bring a, a native plants into the garden as a, in a more tame, more controlled manner. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a whole range of the use of native plants from our reforestation projects where we're, we're really just trying to get the ground covered, 
Um, we, if we can get the ground covered with native plants, then we block out the bare ground for invasives to occur. So on the reforestation level, we're really looking for immediate coverage, dense coverage with the right plants. But as you work into people's backyards, you're looking for a tamer version of the natives. And that's where it really takes knowing the plants and their their needs, their environmental needs, you know, where they're going to be happiest, but also their behavior and how they're going to interact with other plants um, and other other characteristics of your garden. We talk about, in landscape architecture, we talk about building rooms with plants. Mm -hmm. And um, you can imagine having ground covers close to where you're sitting or walking. And um, a little bit further away, you'd have decorative shrubs and and maybe some understory um, perennials that are blooming, providing year-round variation and foliage and flower. Um, And then we, we use understory trees to kind of create walls and overhead uh, canopy, say, around a patio. Imagine sitting under a dogwood tree or mm-hmm. a redbud and having that sense of enclosure, um, the beautiful flowers in the spring. Um, it's, you know, you're, you're doing a little bit of interior decorating with plants. And then the overstory, the canopy, um, trees are giving you that long year-round uh, cooling and uh, cooling in the in the summer, and as leaves fall, you get more sunlight coming in mm-hmm. in the winter and more warmth. Um, so plants, whether they're native or non-native, really give you that opportunity to create spaces. And as a landscape architect, that's what's thrilling to me. So when we start using native plants, uh, we're doing a lot of the very same things that we used to use non-natives for. Imagine the the boxwood or the... Japanese um, inkberry, excuse me, imagine the boxwood or the um, Japanese holly. Mm-hmm. They're very similar in character, and we've used those. Those are available at all of the local nurseries, nurseries and, and so forth. Um, there's actually a native uh, holly, the inkberry holly, which is not so readily available, but it's the native plant that would we could use as a substitute for the boxwood and the Japanese holly. Um, so you can imagine where we'd use um, an evergreen, small-leafed plant, we can substitute the inkberry. So um, learning those different species that um, can be interchanged for what we're used to, what we're used to finding in our local um, ecosystem. Well, we're used to instead of using the the non-native version, where which we can find in the local Home Depot, right? Uh, looking for asking for the the native is is a little more difficult, and you have to be educated. You're not going to walk into a garden center and see inkberry. You're going to see Japanese holly, and you're going to have to know. I want the inkberry, please. I, you don't have to ask. Right, right. right. And the more we do that, the more um, we're going to educate our nurseries and the more we're going to start to find those natives on the front row instead of in the back row of the nurseries. Um, so so that's challenging. 
Um, oh, well, let me let me. Um, okay, you've said a lot here. Um, let me unpack a little bit of it. Okay. So one thing, just as a, a you mentioned some of the reforestation and ground cover, I didn't understand that part of it. Just briefly describe that for me as we go back just a little bit. Okay. When we do our stream restoration projects, mm -hmm. we open up the site both. We remove the vegetation. We remove the canopy. All of a sudden we have a lot of sunlight coming into these, these uh, areas that were once forest covered. The first thing we want to do is get the ground plane covered with a native ground cover. And for that reason, we'll use a seed mix that has a variety of grasses, uh, flowers, sedges, nat all native plants that will establish very quickly and give us a, a very dense coverage on the ground. And that helps to shore up the, the soil that, so it won't collapse and keep building up into the stream. That's right. Torn away. Okay. That's right. And it also... Uh, removes any areas for invasives to to take hold, and, and and my guess is that also helps with the local wildlife that might be around in and around that stream. Also, that's right. It's it's really beneficial to the local wildlife um, that have been displaced by the construction. Uh, so reestablishing that native plant base is really important for the wildlife. Oh, and, and also the, the host of fish and microbes and all the critters that are um, living in the water itself and, and helps with that. It does help with that. And I'm not an expert in that area, but um, the aquatic and the terrestrial ecosystems are, you know, run right together. Symbiotic, right? Yes, okay. symbiotic and... Okay, so that, that answers that question about that, that you were mentioning. So So... Part of your role is to help ensure the the safety of the reforesting areas where we're doing st um, stream restorations or um, cleaning up, you know, some of the forest areas around the waterways. And then you mentioned helping in both public and private areas once you get into residential and commercial and governmental areas where we're looking at landscapes that are around those areas to make them as eco-friendly and also nice place to be using uh, Mother Nature to help make that area both attractive, uh, have some utilization, but use the, the architecture to help um, make it beautiful. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought that up because um, you know, that's another side of my work and another side of what we're involved with with the county is is working around our libraries and our fire stations and community centers and and trying to apply um, native natural landscaping to those very uh, public public outdoor spaces um, and we are working together with the building we are working together with the Building and Design and Construction Division mm -hmm. to um, plan from the ground up new facilities that reduce lawn areas, that use native plants, and that create outdoor spaces that will draw the wildlife and people together on our at our government center. And 
And I've certainly noticed that around the libraries. Some of them have natural gardens that are right in front with labeled with the, the native plants. I, yes. I was out this fall um, at um, the Chantilly Library that had a oh, nice good. garden in front of it. And I couldn't tell you how pleased I was because as I was standing out there, there were more bees than I could imagine. And I, I thought that was great. I was just one of those little things that make you happy. Yes. Um, as doing this podcast and learning so much more about um, the environment, and that's one of those little things that, you know, make you feel good seeing all those big, fat little bumblebees uh, uh, yep. all around. Yep. So you mentioned nurseries, and mm-hmm. uh, everyday folks are about to go out here probably in March and start looking to plant again. Right. Do you guys go out and talk to the nurseries and and, and get with them to talk about hey, maybe we don't need to sell these kind of plants or maybe we, you know, to help out with that. Do they have any feedback with them? Unfortunately, that's not in my job description, and and that that would be a little bit difficult. We haven't gotten to that point in Virginia, but there are many um, folks that are doing that, volunteer groups that Plant Nova Natives does go directly to nurseries. Yes, and I've I've met them. Okay. Yeah, and so they're, they're doing a lot of outreach directly to nurseries, the the best thing that we can do is when we do our planting plans, demand natives. And when the contractor brings us plants to be installed, if they're not natives, we send them back. We re- reject them. It, we make it very clear on our drawings that they're, we're expect, expecting the natives. Okay. So that that's what we're doing. And we're ordering plants in the thousands. Well, and the government certainly is a great place to start as leading an example and exactly. then to to continue to show the um, the commercial industry and the people going out there that this is kind of the stuff that we need to see out there. So that's yeah, that's interesting. Talk to me a little bit about what's been done here at the government center. Oh, I'd love I know to. you were part of that, and yes. I. On my breaks, lunchtime and, and, and when it's a little bit warmer in the afternoons, I'll take a, a stroll around. So tell me a little bit about some of this work that has been done here at the Government Center. Here at the Government Center, the biggest project we've done is the pollinator meadow, which mm-hmm. you may be familiar with. Yeah. And um, we basically took a little over an acre, um, took it out of mowing, and amended the soil, planted native grasses and forbs, flowers, um, and now we're not mowing it, except as a maintenance routine for trying to keep invasives um, at bay. Right. Um, but the pollinator meadow is one project that we, we've done. And if you walk through the, the woods, you'll see one of the stream restoration projects right on the very you know, the very grounds of the, the mm-hmm. government center. And that um, w- was a super interesting project. You'll have to talk about that on another podcast. But in that location, we also planted natives, and we are also um, keeping an eye on the invasive plants uh, and treating them to make sure that they don't sneak in. The government center was planted with a lot of non-natives oh, really? because they were popular at the time right. in the 80s when, the, when the building was constructed. Um, so we're, we're kind of fighting that battle right here on the government center grounds. Um, we have hopes. We're working with the Department of Facilities and Maintenance to redo the gardens out front. Now, that's an expensive project, mm-hmm. but um, we're talking across agencies to try to um, come up with a good plan, a workable plan that 
meets the requirements of safety as well as visual visual um, beauty and um, public gathering. That's one important thing. Yeah. You know, the Celebrate Fairfax and um, Fall for Fairfax events that take out place out in front. I also wanted to mention the work that's going on over at the Heritage Building. I don't know if you get okay. over there. Sometimes. Um, last year, the pond, the dredged pond out in front of the Heritage Building was was retrofitted, cleaned up, and we put in a lot of native plants, uh, including butterfly weed and uh, purple cone flower, which is not native to this area, but it's it's native to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and some native grasses, native sedges. That's a very interesting plant list, and it came together pretty quickly. It's just been on the, the ground one year, um, and we've had uh, pretty good success with the ground covers and, and flowers taking over. Um, we've had to do weeding, naturally, but I think the weeding is going to taper off now that we've gotten the plants um, established for a year, and so the weeding will be less and less. And last year, the butterfly weed bloomed um, You know, for a couple months. We had monarchs. We had tiger swallowtails. Um, so we're going to be seeing a lot more of that. Oh, that's going to be beautiful. I can't wait. Yeah. That's, that's nice. So just to back up a little bit, how did you get into becoming a landscape architect and then into the native plants and into um, horticulture and stuff like that? What's your background? Well, I started um, I started my studies in landscape architecture in the 80s. I went to the University of Washington in Seattle, and my one of my professors, who was very well-renowned, told us that we needed a palette of 25 plants to do all our designing. Um, And most of those 25 plants were what we would now consider at least invasive, if not highly invasive. Um, And and, uh, that was the the style. We didn't know what we were doing back then. Um, Over the years, I worked in the private sector, uh, worked for developers. Um, We were looking for instant plants, if you can think of plants as ever being instant, you know. Um, But as we all know, it takes time for them to become established. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so it's been, um, so so that was a phase, that was the majority of my career. At a certain point, I got interested in in ecology. And in fact, um, that was my initial reason for going into landscape architecture. But I kind of got swept away with, with 25 plants and what the developers want. So I came back to the ecology end of things, and I've really, really enjoyed getting to know uh, all the native plants and what they support. So I've gone from 25 plants to you know 2,500 plants, and it's been a challenge, but it's been a wonderful challenge. And now when I walk out to a stream restoration or the pollinator meadow and I see the life that's there, it's so much more rewarding it's not just about creating rooms with plants. It's about creating living outdoor spaces, which is fascinating. Uh, and to continue the survival of that ecology, it's just interesting to see the the trend towards you know native plants and learning so much about it and keeping the 
the type of birds coming back to the area and the type of pollinators coming back to the area and staying mm-hmm. and maintaining um, some sort of wildlife. I know the, the Board of Supervisors in the latest committee meeting, they're talking about making sure that we keep the canopy levels at, at a certain amount, and that's positive. And when we talk about green streets and some of the other stuff that we're doing and, and, and learning about, but... Um, as far as residents go, when you go to their nurseries, we want them to look for native plants. And even talking to Hugh Whitehead about trees, it's that if you're going to get a tree that's been planted, pre-planted in a bulb, that you wanted to know that that soil or even that tree comes from a, a local nursery yeah. or or, um, uh, or where it's not planted, some you know, another part of the country, because mm-hmm. then you're bringing that all in also. It, it's, it's interesting that he think about the ripple effect that yeah. is all involved. This county is is pretty big. Mm-hmm. How diverse is it from the far western part of the county where it's you're starting to get in um, pre-mountainous area and then all the way to Mesa Neck where it, it's almost like a beach? How different are the ecologies and the systems and the native plants? Is it, is it that much or? Well, it, there's a subtle gradation and some plants are more extreme than others. You know, some plants are better indicators of the coastal plain and you'd only find them there. And and some plants you'd only find in the Piedmont mm-hmm. and, and Triassic Basin. Um, but there is a lot of overlap a- across the region. Um, we have our sassafras and pawpaw, um, the oaks, the wide array of oaks that are everywhere. Um, we have grasses that grow in, across the region. Um, there are indicator speci- species for the coastal plain, the, the sweet bay magnolia, which you may be seeing around more, more now. Uh, we're certainly seeing it more in the nursery trade. But the sweet bay magnolia is a native plant that grows in the coastal plain. It's um, You don't see it many other places, but it's highly adaptable. And so now you're seeing it a lot in the nursery tra- trade, and we're using it in places that we probably wouldn't if we were true to the uh, specific ecosystem. Mm-hmm. But it's um, it's it's um, definitely adaptable. Local so, enough. Yes, local enough. <laughs> Fairfax County, as you say, Fairfax County is is covers a lot of ground. The one thing I wanted to say about Fairfax County is that although um, we have a lot of mowed lawn, a lot of suburban areas, a lot of pavement, that's in where Fairfax I was going to go next. Lawns and yeah. what to do. But we also have great stream corridors, and those corridors are great for wildlife. Um, while they're not 100% native plants, there's a lot of non-native invasives that have creeped on, crept in. Our, our canopy, our forest canopy, is generally very good, um, and that those stream corridors prov- provide habitat for a wide range of of wildlife. So, on our own lawns, we're not just planting our lawn. We're actually by planting natives on our lawn in our yards. We're connecting, we're expanding those stream corridors Mm -hmm. um, and building. We're not building from zero. We're building from a nice solid uh, base of stream corridors. 
Are there some plants that are popular or have been popular out there, um, you know, through the 80s and 90s during the big construction area here um, that got overplanted um, that we want to say, look out for these. These are kind of no-nos. We don't want to plant these here anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I hate to. I was I was a little sad when her crepe myrtle was on 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 the list. Um. <laughs> crepe myrtle, they're beautiful. They're associated with the South, so it's it's really hard to tell anybody don't plant a crepe, crepe myrtle. But there, um, you know, there are other plants to consider. I mentioned the sweet bay magnolia, which has a flower in late June. It's not as showy as the crepe myrtle, but it is more beneficial to wild our local wildlife. Mm-hmm. Um, Nandina, um, you're probably familiar with that. It's got the red-tinged leaves, and it's got beautiful red berries. Um, Again, that's a plant that doesn't have a lot of wildlife value, even though it has the berries. Some berries have more protein, more nutrients than others. So Nandina is one of the sort of fast food food supplies for um, for wildlife. That's interesting. That is a great analogy. That, I love that analogy. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in place of Nandina, uh, we, can, we can look to the hollies again. There's a winterberry holly. Um, it's deciduous, but it has beautiful red berries uh, that persist through the winter. And um, in place of the crepe myrtle, there's the amelanchier, the serviceberry which has beautiful berries um, and a beautiful white flower. It's, again, not as showy as crepe myrtle, but it's it's um, really draws in the wildlife. Uh, the berries don't stick around long because they're so delicious, but um, they draw a lot of wildlife. And what's that called again? That's the service berry. Service berry. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, are we talking... Um, you know, what range of plants uh, are we talking about that we're worried about being native and non-native? Does it go all the way from trees to shrubberies to grasses to even the flowers that we have in our flower beds just for, you know, for show? Does that include, you know, how, how far how far do we go from, you know, our front porch, you know, to the, the front garden, you know, down to the sidewalk? What, what are we talking about? We're talking about the full range, but as I said, there are certain invasive, there are certain non-native species that are not aggressive, that are on the low end of the scale, Mm -hmm. and azaleas are a favorite in this area. There (laughs) are some native azaleas, and they're very beautiful um, and delicate, um, and azaleas and rhododendron are not aggressive non-natives, so they're... They're fine to have in your garden. They're, um, you know, a little bit like furniture. They're not really providing the habitat, but they're, but they're beautiful, and they'll give you the structure that you like, and they'll round out our, our pretty minimal palette of, of evergreens and not do a lot of damage. Um, in Virginia, we don't have very many evergreens. We have the American holly. We have the, um, the inkberry holly, which I mentioned before. We have the mountain laurel. Um, which is difficult to grow. Um, and then we have a couple rhododendron, but we have we're, that's where we're lacking in native hmm. native plants. So um, the azaleas are are not all the, the azaleas are mostly non-native, but they're not aggressive non-natives. 
an, another plant that's over overplanted is the liriope, and that can be uh, an aggressive invasive. So fortunately, we have alternatives to liriope. We have the carex family of plants, which are very much look very much like liriope, and they come in a huge array of textures and colors. They, there's um, a soft blue. Um, there's a soft blue sedge that is gorgeous in gardens. The sedge work well with ferns. So there are alternatives to liriope, and that's that's one of the one of the plants that we'd like to see disappear. Oh, interesting. So I'm going to pick your brain here. I'm going to or I'm, I'm going to have you come out to my place in March. <laughs> okay. I've got a small townhouse with a I don't know maybe. 25 by 25 backyard, you know, um, partly covered by patio, but it is all strange weeds just, and they're they're coming up now. Of course, it's been 65 in February, but what would you suggest? Well, I think I would do a total makeover. Number one. Great. um, (laughs) I can't wait. Number one, your soils are probably terribly compacted. They probably were compacted to 95% when they finish the the townhouse. Mm-hmm. And so you're probably getting root depths of, you know, maybe three inches, but probably more like one. And, you know, the stilt grass loves that, that you know, quarter of an inch of soil. Right. And, and it's hard to find other things that will really live well in that. So um, I would rototill as much as you possibly can, as deep as you can, and then start Start gradually adding um, maybe a tree um, if you if you want a tree if you want a little bit of shade, you probably don't want a large tree, but you might go for a service berry or a dogwood or a mm-hmm. redbud, something like that or or the um, sweet bay magnolia, and then start to build your beds from there and once you've established a, a little bit of shade, I don't know what the orientation is if it's south north. Then you can start looking at what ground covers you might want to add to that. Um, it's nice to keep a sunny spot so that you can grow butterfly weed or mm-hmm. um, some purple asters that really attract insects. Um, you want to think about uh, all seasons of the year. So when you're planting a pollinator corner, um, you want to think about early early spring flowers. Mm-hmm. Um, all the way through to late fall. So um, th- there's a service through the Audubon Society. You you mentioned them earlier. The ambassadors at home, um, they have volunteers that will come out to oh, you. Oh, yes, I've talked to them. That's yeah. right. Okay. Yeah, they have volunteers who will come out to your home and make recommendations about um, the plants that you might consider. Uh, it, it's hard to say, you know, plant these three plants. Um, right. But um, they're a great resource. And some of our arboretums, the Green Spring Gardens, mm-hmm. Meadowlark Gardens, um, as well as some of the uh, nurseries that focus on natives are really good resources for fleshing out your sure. all your options. Are you guys working with the schools at all to um, help them with their groundskeeping, if you will? Well, we're not working with them on their groundskeeping, but our education department, Daniel Wynn, our mm-hmm. ecologist. We've met? Yes. Um, are working with the kids on specific gardens. And 
because the schools are not really geared towards nat natural landscapes at this point, it's more difficult to work on the larger landscapes. We, we are in conversation with them, and we're, we're trying to build our collective knowledge about maintenance, and um, they have a, a lot of concerns about bees. You know, we love to see them, but um, th that's a big concern. Mm -hmm. so, so we're gradually uh, working together. And I think um, Danielle's program of planting small gardens and bioretention okay. is Neat. is really a, a, an excellent starting point. Just to recap a little, why is it important again for the um, for DPWES as far as the combination of forestry and stream restoration? for native plants to be at government buildings, and then once we get into commercial and private areas, um, to encourage folks to plant native plants. As I mentioned, in Fairfax County, we have an ex excellent structure with our stream corridors to, to um, bolster wildlife in this region. Um, the county has access to acres and acres upon acres of, of um, public lands through the park authority, uh, through the stream restoration projects, through schools, through our public facilities to really expand on those natural corridors that exist. And through that, we're going to increase the habitat for all kinds of, of birds from birds and insects and, and mammals, um, from the, the bugs and the critters in the stream all the way through our pollinators, bats, birds, into the canopy. Um, one really interesting statistic is that it takes uh, a pair of chickadees, um, over 5,000 insects, to raise one nest of birds, one clutch of birds. Oh. 5,000 trips to and from the nest to feed their baby birds. And the baby birds don't eat seeds, so our, our bird feeders aren't, aren't helping in that. Right. The baby birds are eating the little insect larvae that the caterpillars, the things that grow in the ground, the things that eat the leaves on the trees. So if we don't have those habitats for the insects, and we will not have the habitats for the birds. Um, and a, a chickadee uh, family needs at least 70% native plants in the landscape for them to mm. successfully breed. Um, so there's an interconnected web. We know this. And um, the more we can expand that web, um, the, the better off our wildlife will be. Well, you know, I'm I, I'm a bird fan, so and the butterfly fan, and and I like to see, you know, all the various birds out at at my feeder. So we want to keep all of them healthy for for the rest of the ecosystem. It, it, it's, you know, the circle of life they say, and certainly here in that area, there is a lot of wildlife, and it, it's interesting needing to keep that. That's that's really cool. Where would you suggest for folks to get more information before they go out and plant or if they just want to learn more about it? I've got a few here also, but tell me anywhere you want people to go. Well, I think that when you're starting to plan your, your garden for the spring, 
uh, you know, this is a wonderful time if you're your cloistered way at home uh, thinking about the, the green buds that are going to appear. Um, this is a wonderful time to think about native plants and imagine that you're taking the money that you would normally spend on annual plants or replacement plants and you're going to spend the same amount of money but you're going to buy natives. Uh, and where do you find those natives? Um, we'll, we'll give you some resources at the, at the end of this uh, podcast. There's certainly plenty of native plants at the garden centers around the area, but some of the special garden centers that, that specifically um, grow native plants are Earth Sangha, which is in Springfield. They're a nonprofit. Um, Spell Sangha? S-A-N-G-H-A. Okay. Uh, Nature by Design, which is also in Alexandria. Mm-hmm. Um, Hill House Nurseries, which is out in, near Chaselton, Virginia. And there's several others in Loudoun County that focus on native plants. I think that an excellent website is the Plant Nova Natives website right. because they will tell you not only who grows native plants, what nurseries to use. They'll also tell you some of the names of landscape designers who use only native plants. And they'll give you resources like gardens. Uh, they'll give you resources like botanic gardens where you can go for expert advice. Mm-hmm. Some of the master gardeners that can... And the master gardeners, right. yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we. I, I met a number of them at the... Uh, environmental conference that uh, Supervisor Stork had oh, in, yes. uh, in Alexandria area last year. It was really interesting, and they'll come out and come help you look in your backyard and, and help you figure out uh, what you need to do. And I also noticed that the parks and other groups have weekly volunteer efforts where you can go out to the parks and the stream areas, and they will send you out to go look for some invasive plants and, and to help take them out. So that's not just looking at planting in your own backyard in your neighborhood, but getting out as far as a volunteer effort with the county and the parks to to help like you said, get rid of some of those invasive plants. Yes. Volunteering is an excellent way to work with people, work side-by-side side with people that know a lot about invasives, a lot about natives, and pick their brain. So I highly recommend getting out and volunteering. Or do a podcast, and you meet all these great people, and then have them over for a cookout, <laughs> and then they can tell you what to do in your backyard. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, Susie, thank you so much for coming out. I really appreciate it, and uh, I'm looking forward to talking to you again. Maybe we'll get you back down at the end, uh, maybe next fall, and to talk about what stuff people do uh, over the winter with plants and stuff like that. Well, thank you, Scott. I've really enjoyed it, and I, I really hope that people will get out there and plant native plants. Native plants. So for more information on any of this stuff, there is a number of places where to go, both with the county website and some other places out there. There is the Virginia Native Plant Society. Uh, That's a good one. Also, the Northern Virginia Soil and Water Conservation District. There is some good information on on natives here directly with the fairfaxcounty.gov. You can just go to the search function there and find a lot of these great places. That is it for this episode of Fairfax County's EnviroPod. If you want to hear more, you can find us at fairfaxcounty.gov slash podcast. Of course, the DPWES website where there are also a, there is a, also a lot more information on um, 
you can search many links on native plants uh, on the county website also. Um, and we are also on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you have any questions or comments or an idea for a topic to be discussed on EnviroPod, email swpdmail at fairfaxcounty.gov or call 703-324-5821. Once again, thank you so much for joining us, and thanks to my good friend Irene for making all of this happen. Hi, Irene. (laughs) That's it for this episode for EnviroPod. I'm Scott Coco. We'll see you next time.